Anyone read the news here? Sorry if you do. But there's some crazy stuff happening, right? We have a war right now between Russia and the Ukraine, which is a bummer. We have rumors of war, that information that was just leaked, whether it was purposeful or not, by China of their possible attack of Taiwan and the Philippines and then potentially other islands to the east, which would include Hawaii. Like, oh, rumors of war. How about our weather? Texas is frying hot. New Mexico is on fire. Oregon, we had snow in May. You know why it's called May in Oregon? Because it may snow, it may rain, it may shine. It for sure is going to rain on Boatnik, though. We know that. That's coming, so prepare for that. How about plagues? Who in the last two years didn't have someone they love die from COVID or some kind of complication, right? Like, whoa. How about monkeypox? Like, what in the world? I've never heard of it before. And all of a sudden, it's like on every news channel, monkeypox, look out. Ah! <laughs> like, whoa, what does this all mean, right? You read all, what does this all mean? It's the end of the world as we know it. The only question is, do you feel fine? Okay? So, are you ready for a prophecy update? Because we're in Mark chapter 13. And Mark chapter 13 is prophecy according to Jesus. So if right now you have your Schofield annotated reference Bible, you are going to be disappointed in me. If you're waiting for me to talk about Gog and Magog, you're going to be totally bummed by me, right? Because I think that all of us, when it comes to prophecy, if you're really into prophecy, we're all schizophrenic. That for the last 50 years, there's been all these voices that have said these things prophetically, that when we read the Bible, we don't actually read it anymore. We're just having those voices from the last 50 years speak to us as we read it. So we're not careful readers like we should be. We're just kind of, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I remember that, someone talked about that. So I think we gotta go back and erase those things and be really careful with prophecy. Because if not, what happens is like we get all hyped up like someone makes this amazing connection between the newspaper and Ezekiel. We're like, oh yeah, wow. Like the Bible has all these Easter eggs in it that if you just read your newspaper, you can find it. I personally don't believe that. I don't think that's true. So I've always promised that I'm gonna be really honest with Edgewater, even when you don't like it, or especially when you don't like it because that's when you need it. So I'm gonna do prophecy, Mark chapter 13, the way that Jesus did prophecy. And if I'm looking prophetically today at the Bible, the first person I start with is Jesus. And I'm gonna look at what he said prophetically and then use what he said to then expand out into other areas. So Mark chapter 13, this is Jesus talking prophetically and we're gonna carefully look at it, and you're gonna feel like I turned a fire hose on you and you try to take a drink of it. And that's what I'm gonna do. So be prepped, let's go. Mark chapter 13, verse one. And as he came out of the temple, they're leaving the temple, they're walking through the Kidron Valley. One of his disciples said to him, 
Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you not, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I just say, this is the temple of doom. Jesus, as they're walking away, this place is going down. Context always drives meaning. Jesus has come in, presented himself as king, his coronation. They start questioning Jesus, not because they want to know anything about Jesus, but in Mark 12, 12, it says they're questioning him to find an occasion to arrest him because they want to kill him. So really, Jesus presents himself as king and immediately the governing authorities have rejected him. So Jesus, with his kingdom, bringing peace, bringing rightness, bringing a kingdom of light, bringing what Isaiah says is a time when the lion will lie down with the calf and the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the ox will eat, or the lion will eat straw like an ox and a child will play with a poisonous snake and there's no problem. A transformed kingdom. They're rejecting Jesus and all that that encompasses the kingdom of light. So if you reject the kingdom of light, what do you get? The other kingdom, the kingdom of doom, the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of destruction, the kingdom of evil. That doom is coming for you. You rejected me as king. You rejected my kingdom. And so now, devastation is coming on you instead. And this is terrible for the Jews because the temple was everything for them. It would be like our White House, our Pentagon, and our Statue of Liberty all wrapped into one complex. It was all that for them. National identity, it was religion, it was government, it was all that. And it was beautiful and brilliant. That's why they're bragging on it. And they started this almost superstitious idea about the temple. It's found in Jeremiah 7 verse 4, where they say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, which meant no one can touch us because we've got the temple here. Since we've got God, no one can come and destroy us. They had a superstition about it. It was untrue. So this is terrible, terrible news. Jesus just told them the worst news they could possibly get. So here's what happens. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, they've made it through the Kidron Valley. They're up on, if you've ever been to Israel, on the Mount of Olives, you're facing, you're facing the temple. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples ask a question. Jesus, now if you have a Bible that has red letters in it, Jesus is gonna talk a long time. There's a lot of red coming. So you gotta be really clear, what is Jesus being asked and what is his answer? What are these guys asking about? Are they asking when the end of the world will be? Are they asking about Gog and Magog in Russia? No, what are they asking about? When will the temple be destroyed? You just told us that this beautiful temple is gonna be destroyed. Hey, Jesus, when is that going to happen? Jesus is a good teacher. 
he is going to answer their question. The question they ask is, when is the temple being destroyed? That's what he's going to answer. And we know when it was destroyed. The 30th of August, 70 AD, General Titus finally makes it through the walls of Jerusalem, goes in, ransacks the temple, makes a sacrifice to Zeus, and burns it to the ground. And because the gold melts, they actually take the pieces of it, the big stones apart to get the gold down in between. We know what happened. And this is not just some small event in Israel. This was a massive event for Titus. I've been to Rome. And in Rome, there's an arch that's built to Titus. And on that arch, I have a picture of it. That right there is the depiction of them carrying the menorah after they destroyed the temple. So that's how big it was. It put Titus on the map. It cemented his power. This is a massive event. The arch of Titus made in 81 AD still existing. Big, big deal. So Jesus now is gonna answer their question about when the temple will be destroyed because that's the question, right? Before I launch into that, people ask me like, Matt, what are you when it comes to Bible prophecy? Here's what I am. I'm a classic premillennialist with a lot of progressive dispensationalism. <laughs> if you're saying, I don't know what that means, that's why I say it. <laughs> Progressive does not mean I'm voting for Ralph Nader or Tina Kotak. I'm not. Progressive means that prophecy moves somewhere, that there's a progression to prophecy, and it's important to see its movement. And the phrase that is used for progressive dispensationalism is this, already, not yet. So if you've read something that has an already, not yet, that's a progressive dispensationalist view of that prophecy. And what it means is this, there can be a prophecy that has an already component to it and it can actually stop and there can be a not yet part of it. Well, Matt, why are you that? Because I think Jesus was that. And I think Peter was that. So we have both of them quoting an Old Testament prophecy moving the prophecy to a certain point and then literally truncating it in the middle of the prophecy and saying, that's not yet. So Jesus, you can compare Luke chapter four, verse 19, where he talks about, hey, this is the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. And he literally stops it mid-sentence, stops Isaiah 61 mid-sentence because the next sentence is, and the coming judgment of the Lord. So what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter four is this, I'm bringing the Lord's favor, stop. There's gonna be a space and then there's coming judgment. So he truncates it already, but there's not yet part to it, right? Peter quotes Joel chapter two in Acts chapter two, verses 16 through 19. Read it, carefully compare the two. And what you see is Peter does part of it and then he also truncates Joel as well. This part is being fulfilled today in your midst, but there's a not yet part of it. So if Jesus and the apostle Peter do prophecy that way. I think I'm in good company. So that's where I'm at, all right? So now let's jump in. What happens? He starts to answer, when's the temple gonna be destroyed? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Before Jesus goes into anything, the first phrase he says to them is, listen, don't be led astray. Why would Jesus, even before he says anything prophetically, why would he say, hey, guys, don't be led astray? Because we get led astray. Me. I've been led astray, right? So there was a time when I was so into prophecies and prophecies updates. It was like 99, 2000-ish. And it was right during Y2K. Remember that? When there was like this fervor about Bible prophecy and Jesus was coming back and it was gonna happen right there. Man, hook, line, and sinker. I was like, any day now, Jesus is coming back. Like I wouldn't buy green bananas because I thought, nah, they won't ripen. Uh-uh. <laughs> I want to buy a convertible because it's coming. I'm, I don't want to go through the roof. I was where I was at. Like I would hear the, a trumpet. I'd be like, get goosebumps. Is that it? Are we going? So I was 100% hook line and sinker. I would go to work and I would talk to the other engineers about Russia and tanks and their fighter jets and EMP bombs and artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons and getting a chip in your head. And your, I mean, it was hundred percent. I'm like, January 1st, man, 2000 is happening. Well, it came and went. I was like, ah, oh, no problem. Jesus is patient. O2 happened, O3 happened, O4 happened, and then they started to tease me, so I quit my job. I'm like, that's it, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, I listen to you guys, scoffers! <laughs> I'm dead serious, man. There was a period of time I would not use a credit card. Do you know why? Because I saw this. Have you seen this? Visa. Six, six, six. You use a Visa card, you are taking the mark of the beast right? So I was like, ah, I'm not taking that. I'm not using a Visa card, right? I was 100%. Well, at some point I said, is that true? Right? The VI, yeah, I get that. That's Roman. The Greek, uh, that's a big stretch. How about Babylonian? Is an A the, sig- the symbol for a Babylonian six? Well, let's see here. That's a six. Does that look like an A? No. Right? I went, wait a second. I've been led astray. I'm using a credit card now. Praise God. <laughs> it's easy to be led astray. People that I love. Chuck Smith. He did a message, a series of messages on Romans. He did 168 messages on 16 chapters. That's 17 messages per chapter. Man, that resaved my soul, transformed my life. Love him. He wrote a book in 1978 called End Times. And in the, that book, End Times, I have it, I read it. In that book, he makes some big claims about when Jesus was gonna come back. And so I just hopped on. I want to see if, if you can still find the end times. I went on Amazon to find an end times book. Look at that price. Why is it so expensive? I think Calvary Chapel bought them all and burned them. <laughs> and like killed the people that read them. Did you read this? You're dead. 
Why? Because this is what Chuck Smith says, and I have the quote right here. I had this book. I should sell it. <laughs> it's a collector's edition. If I understand Scripture correctly, Jesus taught us that the generation which sees the budding of the fig tree, the birth of the nation Israel, will be the generation that sees the Lord's return. I believe that the generation of 1948 is the last generation. Since a generation of judgment is 40 years and the tribulation period lasts seven years, I believe the Lord could come back for his church any time before the tribulation starts, which could mean any time before 1981. Uh-oh. It's come and gone. I love Chuck Smith. This was a mistake. He never did it again. He never tried to set a date again. So he learned like, hmm, we have to be very careful. Because over the past 50 years, I think the church, Big C Church, has made mistakes in setting dates and doing things like this that, is, that has given us black eyes and freaked people out. What's Jesus' point in this whole text? To me, it's the last thing. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. All this stuff, nah, it's just, just birth pains. You guys remember when you had your first baby? Remember Braxton Hicks? Right? I remember when Charity was pregnant with Carissa and she started to get Braxton Hicks. I was like, let's go. Hospital, right? No, no, it's not time yet. Right? By the time we had our fifth, she'd get a Braxton Hicks and I'd be like, you're fine, woman. Come on. Ain't nothing. Just wait, it's coming. But that's not it, not yet, right? So it's like, hey, chill. I've told my wife over and over, she should write a book, how to raise your first like your fifth. Because don't you get better as a parent? Like you just get better and better. You take fewer things seriously. The only drawback is you also get tireder and tireder. So Myron, he's my eight-year-old. I'm like, bro, I can't play with you. I'm just too tired. Elijah, go out there. You're 14, go play with him surrogate dad, right? So Jesus here is saying, listen, don't be alarmed. Why? Because all these things are just the normal birth pains, Braxton Hicks of life, right? There's always been wars and rumors of war. Historians say only 5% of human history has had peace in it. There's always been empires and nations and people that rise up and cause problems. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, Carthage, the Visigoths, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Putin, right? Osama bin Laden, Hussein, just go on and on. There's always people that are gonna rise up and cause problems. Yeah, just the beginning. Don't even worry about it. Don't freak out. This is the way things are. There's gonna be earthquakes and famines. I have a buddy, he's got a earthquake app on his phone. Tells him the frequency of earthquakes. Look, Matt, it's coming, look, there's more earthquakes. I'm like, bro, come on. That's just birth pains, man. That's just, that's just Braxton Hicks, right? That's it, that's all it is. Don't be alarmed. But what happens? We get alarmed, don't we? I remember because of prophecy and my upbringing, I'm at OSU and George Herbert Bush attacked Iraq. Remember that? Gulf War I. 
I remember when the attack happened, thinking to myself, this is the end. I'm not gonna graduate from college. I'm not gonna have kids. I'm never gonna get married. What a bummer. This is the end. But it wasn't. Then fast forward 10 years, George W. Bush attacks Saddam Hussein and Iraq. And then I'm thinking, oh no, this is the end. My daughter's not gonna get married. I thought, wait a second, that's good news. Hold on. Maybe this is so bad after all. I don't want to go through that stage, right? Right? We just get alarmed over and over again. No, life is birth pains. There's cycles to it. It's okay. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. Why? Because the goal of birth pains is what? New birth. New life. Like for a second, just draw back for a second. The way life is with its cycles, what is it doing? It's new birth, right? Remember when Carissa, that first pregnancy that I went into and my wife decided to do it all natural, 100%, no epidural, none of those things, and brutal, brutal, agony, screams, pain, like, ah, right? But then Carissa was born. And I can still remember the moment I first held my daughter. In that moment, I 100% forgot all my pain and sorrow. It's just gone. Because a new life was born. All right? Don't be alarmed. Right? We're not at the push stage yet. Don't be alarmed. That's what Jesus is saying. So then be on your guard. (laughs) For they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in the hour. For it is not you that speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So a big question is, was all this fulfilled by AD 70? So for that to happen, is all this fulfilled by AD 70? Did people die? No, yeah. Peter died, Paul died, Stephen died, James died, right? You have Caesar Nero going off in Rome during this time, burns it to the ground, 64 AD, and then blames the Christian and then would dip them in oil, put them in his garden, light them in fire and shriek around playing his violin, yelling the light of the world. That was a ton of death. Brutal death, yeah, yes. Were they hated? Were Christians hated? Oh man, read the book of Acts. Read what happens in Ephesus. Read Claudius, the Caesar from 41 to 50. He put out the Claudius Edict, which was this. All people that follow a guy named Crestus who disappeared from his tomb have to leave Rome now under penalty of death. They were hated. Get out. And if I catch anyone robbing a tomb, he said, they'll be put to death that moment. Yeah, they were hated. Was the gospel preached to the world? According to Paul, it was. Romans 10, 18, gospel has gone out to the world. Colossians 1, verse 6, gospel has gone out to the world. According to the 
We're looking in on the church. Acts chapter 17, the way that the people looked at the church, they said, these are the people that have turned the whole world upside down with this gospel. Sure seems like it. We limit the gospel to a missionary with the Bible. Is God limited by a missionary with the Bible? Great privilege for us, but no. In Revelation, an angel goes and preaches the gospel. Now, I know people that have dreams and visions, Muslims up in Portland that they were Muslim and then Jesus appeared to them in a dream and huh, they are now believers in Jesus Christ. Yeah, we limit it, not God. Right? Has the gospel gone? Uh-huh. Okay, how about earthquakes? Were there earthquakes back then? Mm-hmm. Laodicea had a massive earthquake in 60 AD. It actually rerouted a river and Laodicea became this kind of slowly began this glide into oblivion. Pompeii, AD 62, massive earthquake. People should have left right then because it was an angry volcano that was ready to pop its top, right? So yeah, earthquakes. How about famines? 100%. There was a famine that was so big in Israel that the Gentile churches up north gathered together money and food and sent it down to help out the church in Jerusalem from the famine that was so bad down there. 100%. Yeah. So here's what happens. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible, the elect, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The abomination of desolation. Here's the already not yetness of the Bible. If you know your Bible, Daniel chapter 9, he prophesies 500 years before this about an event called the abomination of desolation. It happened in history. 167 BC, about 200 years before Jesus. This guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, his name literally means God manifest. People that think they are God are bad people. He's a bad person. He rules over a quarter of the Greek empire, decides he's gonna go subjugate Egypt again. And so he takes his armies and heads from Turkey down on the King's Highway, which is just outside of Israel, and heads on down to Egypt. On his way down there, this guy that believes he is God, they're charging along. All of a sudden, this 80-year-old dude comes out in the middle of the road and puts up his hand, stop. It's a Roman by the name of Gaius Papalius. 
The whole army skids to a stop. He says, I want to talk to Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy that believes he's God, comes rolling out with his generals. What do you want, old man? Get out of here. He's like, turn your horses around and go home. And Antiochus Epiphanes just is like, what? You're telling me to do that? Who are you? He said, I am Rome. And I'm telling you, turn your horses around and go home. And so Antiochus Epiphanes knew I can't take on Rome. Rome was the big dog in the neighborhood now. They had just risen up. They had defeated Carthage. They were the power center of the Middle East, the power center of that entire region. So he's like, "Uh uh-oh, how do I save face right now in front of all my generals and my army and uh, turn around? So he goes, you know what? I'll I'll go talk about it and think about it. Gaius Papaleus, 80 years old, takes his cane and draws a circle in the dirt around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, you will give me your answer before you step across that line. Yeah, what a stud. Goodness. Where are men like that today? Right? So Antiochus Epiphanes knows he can't. He says, you better turn east when you leave, which means go back. So he leaves and he's mad. So he heads back up. As he's going up, he turns from the king's highway and heads into Jerusalem. Mad goes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, makes a sacrifice to Zeus, sacrifices a pig on the altar, forces the priest to drink the blood of this sacrifice, just as profane, as abomination of desolation as you can. And then he outlaws the Torah, the Bible. If you're found with the Bible, your head's cut off. Outlaws circumcision. If you circumcise your child, they're killed. And outlaws the keeping of the Sabbath. If you're keeping the Sabbath, you're killed. He outlaws religion. Well, if you know the story, there's this guy that lived in an outer city called Mattathias. He had five kids. Matt with five kids. I already like him. So he starts this revolt called the Maccabean Revolt and somehow against all odds, he pushes Antiochus Epiphanes and his horde out of Israel. They cleanse the temple. They have no oil. It stays lit for eight days and we celebrate or Jewish people celebrate that today in Hanukkah. It was the abomination of desolation. Jesus knew it had happened 200 years before this. So what's he saying here? He's saying it's already, but there's a not yet to it. There's another one coming. There's another abomination of desolation that's coming. So pay close attention, right? So he says this, when you see it, when you see events that look very similar to what happened in 167 BC, he says this, get out, run. Don't go back and take your cloak. Just absolutely get out, run as fast as you can because bad times are coming. It's like if you've ever been on an airplane, if it wrecks, you know, if there's an accident, what do they say? Leave your bags. Don't grab your coat. Get off. Do we actually do that? So a couple years ago, I don't know if you remember this plane, it it was pulling out and it caught on fire. Pretty bad deal, right? You don't want to be on that plane. So the stewardess is saying, or the flight attendant, excuse me, the flight attendants were saying, get off. Don't grab anything. Don't do anything. Did the people listen? There's this picture. How many bags does she have, right? She was known affectionately for a while as the bag lady. She's like, is that your laptop? You're not taking it, I'll grab it too. She's got four bags on her. And that's what we do. Jesus is saying, 
It's gonna be so bad. This is coming for you so hard. Run. Here's what's amazing. In 68 AD, the zealots came into Jerusalem. They kicked out the rightful priesthood. They put in a priesthood that could not do sacrifice, that did not know what they were doing. And the Christians were like, hey, Jesus said something like this was gonna happen. And all the Christians got out of Jerusalem before Titus came down a year later and made siege to it and destroyed it. The Christians in 68 AD read this text and they said, this is our prophecy. This is happening in our time. And they listened to it, obeyed it, got out, and they were saved. Interesting to me that they would believe it was about them. Okay, verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavenlies will be shaken. And then you will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now that didn't happen, Matt. The sun and moon didn't get darkened. Remember the fire and talent? What happened to the sun and the moon? They were darkened, real dark. Historians writing, because of that fire that happened inside of Jerusalem, they said the sun, literally, the sun and the moon were darkened. So yeah, you could totally make a case for that. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying something else. And here's a big kind of idea on how to interpret the Bible. There are two main ways. The New Testament, you can grab a Greek word and you go back and kind of figure out how that culture used that Greek word and then import Greek culture into the Bible. That's one way. That's how some people interpret scripture. I think the way that you interpret the Bible is you figure out how Bible writers use that phrase or use those terms and then you see how the New Testament writers would have used it because the Bible that these Christians would have been reading was the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So I think you figure out meaning by looking at Revelation, the revelation of Scripture, Old Testament. So Jesus here is quoting two sections of Scripture. The first one is Isaiah chapter 13. I'll put it up here. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Jesus is grabbing this literature from Isaiah and he's quoting it here. So what was Isaiah talking about? He was talking about the destruction of Babylon. That Babylon had become so evil and so bad that God said, that's it, I'm going to destroy and Jerusalem, I think, is this. Jerusalem has become the new Babylon because they were devouring widows' bank accounts because they were making the temple into a den of robbers because they'd rejected the rightful king. They'd become the new Babylon and destruction was coming upon them. And there's a second one. Jesus uses this son of man on the clouds. Where's that from? It's from Daniel chapter seven. That Jesus gets the name for himself from Daniel chapter seven. And Daniel said, if you don't know it, it's four beasts in a row that rise up out of the sea and they do evil stuff. The last beast is a mega beast and God himself comes and puts a stop to the mega beast. 
right? And then right after Almighty puts a stop to the mega beast, you have this incredible little prophecy. I looked. Then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast, that mega beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God Almighty, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 12 through 14. Jesus is quoting this right here. And it's like Jesus is speaking to an audience that would be, that they would bleed the Bible. They knew the Bible. So he doesn't have to go into depth on things. He can mention part of it and everyone knows what he's talking about. It'd be like me saying today, remember 9-11. I don't have to go into the whole history of 9-11. All of us know, oh yeah, fully. That's what the Bible authors did all the time. You would know what's being spoken of. That I am that one, the son of man coming on the clouds. A kingdom is being given to me and it will last forever. I'm the coming one of Daniel chapter Seven, that's what he's saying. So Jerusalem is this beast that's gonna rise up and it will trample me and it will destroy me and it will kill me. But praise God, resurrection's coming. And the language Jesus uses here is not return language. He is gonna return for us. That's not the language here. It's enthronement language. I'm going to be enthroned. I'm gonna have a dominion. I'm going to rule because I have Colossians 2.15, crush the powers of darkness. But we know the kingdom is not fulfilled yet. 1 Corinthians 14, 25 and 26 says this, the end will come when Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the Father. But right now he's putting all his enemies under his feet and there is still one enemy left and that enemy is death. That the kingdom has been inaugurated, it's been started but it won't be finished until Jesus returns and puts the punctuation mark on it and hands it over to the Father. And we're in the in-between right now. We're in the waiting time between. This enthronement language. When Jesus ascends up, what does it say? He ascends up into the clouds. Why? Daniel chapter seven, Mark chapter 13, I am now enthroned. That the life of Jesus is pictured by David the king. We're studying him right now on Wednesday nights. David was anointed king at 16. He didn't even take the kingdom until he was 30 years of age. And during that period, there's an evil man that's trying to kill him, actually drives him out of Israel. He has to live in enemy territory for a while before he can come back in. And when he comes back in, he's only king of Judah for a while. And then seven years later, he unites the whole kingdom. That's a gradual, progressive growing of the kingdom. That's a picture of Jesus. That this is speaking still, previous to the temple. All right, so one more. I know I have just turned a fire hose on you, but I won't apologize because I think you can handle it. So here, one more. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Chuck Smith said, the bunny of the fig tree is Israel, its rebirth, 1948. Add 40 years, minus seven, 1981. That day has come and gone. Any generation you try to come up with just doesn't fit. I don't think that's what this is saying. So for me, I wanna look at how Jesus uses the phrase, this generation. Is this generation the one that sees Israel rebirth or does Jesus use this generation in other places? He uses this exact phrase over and over. He uses it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. He says, what should I compare this generation to? They're like kids in a marketplace. A flute was played and they didn't dance. Uh, dirge was placed they didn't mourn. John the Baptist came as an ascetic, right? Fasting. I came with feasting, eating and drinking, but you guys didn't listen to either of us. You're apathetic, unresponsive, this generation. He uses it in Matthew 12, 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment on this generation because one greater than Jonah is here and there's no repentance. He uses it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 36, which is right before his prophecy, a longer prophecy than Mark. And he says this, you guys have killed the prophets. You've killed everyone that God sent to you. So judgment is coming upon this generation. All these things are gonna come on this generation. I think the simplest, easiest way to look at this generation is a generation that was alive in AD 33 that within 40 years would see the destruction of the temple, everything that Jesus just said taking place. I think that's the simplest way to explain it. So you're sitting there right now saying, Matt, why'd you do this to us? Well, it's the Bible. I think we should know. And I want you to always know exactly where I stand on things. I don't want people to come here and be here like four years and be like, you believe what? I'm out. I want you to know as quick as possible. So if you're like, I can't agree with that, I'm okay with that. I'm gonna be really honest with you and tell you where I stand and how I see the Bible, okay? And also, I want to leave you with just a couple of things that will help you when you think about Bible prophecy. Number one, be very careful with Bible prophecy. Always read the context. Look up every quotation in the Old Testament and see what is being said there because that to me is the key. Revelation unlocks revelation. You just use it as the key. What was being said there? Who's being talked about there? What would that mean when the Bible, the New Testament authors were writing it? That's number one. Number two, what's the goal of prophecy? You might disagree with me and I'm okay with that. You might say, Matt, I don't agree with how you interpret Mark chapter 13. No problem. Much smarter people than me disagree in all kinds of areas. I've got five loaves and two fish. That's it. I realize I'm limited. This is how I see it. I'm okay with it. If you disagree, no problem. There are people that I love that agree with me, people that I love that disagree with me. Absolutely no problem. But everyone has to agree on the goal of prophecy. 
It's real simple. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Prophecy is to edify, build this up, exhort, and comfort. So if somebody teaches something prophetically and then you feel anxious and fearful and worried and you're like, ah, the end of the world, I don't think that was done correctly. That it should make me feel comforted, exhorted, edified, built up. And then thirdly, what you see is Jesus throughout this text giving counsel to his disciples who are gonna see these events. And the counsel is brilliant. He says five things to them. Number one, he says, don't be led astray. Verse five, be careful. Have your radar up. Just because something sounds sensational and interesting does not mean it's true. Be careful. Number two, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. The king is on the throne. Eventually, everything that is evil, every beastly government will be dealt with. I'm not alarmed. I'm not alarmed by what's happening in Russia. I'm not alarmed what's happening in America. I'm not alarmed by it. Why? Because I have a king who's in control and the end is really good. I've read the end of the book. Don't be alarmed. Number three, be on guard. What you see in Bible prophecy is this. There's real evil, right? There's real evil that's gonna happen to Jerusalem here. There's real evil. So be armed, be on guard. Ephesians chapter six, put on the full armor of God. There's real evil and it's coming after the believers of Jesus. That's what happens over and over in history. And then lastly, or excuse me, fourthly, proclaim the gospel. No matter where you stand on Bible prophecy, you can be completely different than me. Schofield, you know, dispensationalist. Hey, that's great. But the goal always of the believer is simple. I wanna tell people about King Jesus so that they believe in him and they're spared from the coming evil that's gonna eventually hit planet Earth. That's what we want. And then fourthly, or fifthly, and lastly, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. That is the wrong response to where things are going. You and I over and over are told to have this hope, the hope of the return of Christ, the hope that he's gonna set things right, the hope to have that hope, and that dispels any anxiety. So Bible prophecy, Matthew 13, according to Jesus. So we go to the table this morning. Here's what I would say. Jesus answers his disciples' questions. Tells them hard truths, right? That's, whenever this happens, whatever scheme you have, whenever this happens, that's not a happy truth. The only happiness comes in the next chapters. That Jesus would take upon himself the evil of the beasts of Daniel chapter seven. The evil that I deserve, I deserve to go through Mark chapter 13. But Jesus went through it for us. That's why we don't have to be anxious. He took our penalty, paid our price, 
took the death that I, he, I deserve so I could have the life that he has earned. That's why we come to the table. That's the memorial that I wanna constantly remember. I've got a great life because of Jesus. No matter what happens, it's secure in him. It's good in him. And I trust him. So Jesus, today, I pray for any in here who are anxious. I pray for any who are worried, who see the news and see events, and it causes their heart to be troubled. I pray as we partake that we would not be anxious, that we would trust you, that you're the king and you love us and you proved it by paying the debt that we owe to redeem us from evil, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So may we eat of your peace today. May we accept your kingdom today. May we accept you as king today. And may we get peace and love and joy and long-suffering and meekness. Let's eat together. Oh, I got a stubborn one. Dang. Ah! I'm just going to eat it. All right. Golly. I was going to tell you guys how to do it. I'm glad I didn't. Because that was a fail right there. Some of them are stubborn. All of them are stubborn. I'll put it that way. You got to fight through all the problems and tribulations to get to the table. Jesus, for forgiveness of sins. Oh, you are so good to us. No matter what else happens, we are forgiven. The bridge back to our creator has been rebuilt. We've been invited to come and eat with you, our king to boldly come before your throne of grace, to be adopted as sons and daughters, to be given the down payment of your spirit. Oh, we've got it so good. May we drink of your goodness today. Let's drink together. Amen. So, we offer two things. We're not singing a final song because I knew I was going to go long. But if you need prayer today, maybe you're anxious, maybe you're fearful, maybe all that stuff, you feel it. Come up here today and cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. If you want to make Jesus your king, we offer baptism. He saves us by his grace. We become, I believe, underneath his lordship, his kingship when we start to obey him. And we obey him by keeping his command. And one of them is be baptized. You are plunged into this water. The old Jew has passed away. You're brand new. You're in my kingdom. You're, oh, it's amazing. So if today is your day where you're saying, I want him not just to be my savior. I want him to be my king today. Come and obey him and be baptized. And Jason, folks, that right there, 
Would love to talk with you what that means, salvation, baptism. If you're doing good, God bless you. Be on guard. Amen.